Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is July 27th, 2009, and my guest is David Brady, the Davies Family Senior Fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution, the Bowen H. and Janice Arthur McGoy Professor of Political Science and Leadership Values in the Stanford Graduate School of Business, and Amir Professor of Political Science at Stanford. Dave, welcome to EconTalk. Thank you. Uh, our topic for today is the politics of change, and in particular, the politics of healthcare change. Poll after poll seems to indicate and this goes back quite some time, certainly goes back into the early 1990s, polls indicate a desire for health care reform, yet little change gets made. Why do you think that is? I think there are two reasons. Uh, the first one is, uh, in the abstract, there's a desire for change. Uh, is there something wrong? And you read the press, and yeah, we, know people, uh, we have lots of people in the United States who aren't covered. So uh, people say it needs change, but on the other hand, if you ask people about how's your health care, um, in the 90s, before the Clinton period, it was about 87% uh, thought that their health care was either very good or good, and uh, a small proportion thought it wasn't so good, and even at the present time, it's 83% are pretty satisfied with their health care. Therefore, when the status quo is you're pretty satisfied, anything that shifts the status quo is problematic. The second thing is because most surveys don't properly value or ask the question about what's the trade-off. So you're familiar with that studies at the Grand Canyon when it's cloudy or there's something if you ask people, well, what are you willing to pay to clear the Grand Oh, really to pay a lot. So million dollars to yeah, make the Grand Canyon. Clear. Exactly. If it's a public good, uh, and it doesn't cost anything. So Dan Kessler and I, in an article coming out in the uh, Journal of Health Affairs, um, did a study, three, a sam- random sample of uh, 1,000 Americans uh, three times, and uh, did various contingent valuations where we actually convert the amount of change into dollars and ask them how much are they willing, uh, are they willing to pay this much based on their uh, previous uh, statements about. And it turns out that uh, everybody's sort of in favor of reform, but no one's willing to pay for it. I want to talk a little bit about, let's go into a little more depth on that survey because it's so interesting both in methodology and in its outcome. Let's start with the methodology. This is an internet-based survey, and we did an overview of that technique with uh, Doug Rivers. People can go back and listen to that podcast. But this is a long-standing sample of people that have an opportunity to respond in a very uh, relatively, at least, reliable way, and, and you know a lot about them. These are not just people who, when you hear the phrase internet polling, people think, oh, they just get on the internet and answer a poll. That's not what this is. This is a, a panel of individuals who were sampled on particular questions where, unlike a question error that's implemented over the phone, because you're often interviewing the same people, you have a great deal of information about them. So you know their income pretty reliably. Is that correct? Absolutely. What's the, so how do you know their income, though? Is it, is well, it, when, they sign on to the, when they sign on to be in the Internet, the pool that uh, YouGov Polymetrics uses, 
uh, we get that statement once, and we never have to ask it again. You can update it occasionally, but we know quite a bit about we, we know quite a bit about them because they're regulars. They don't go out of the pool. And but you can still construct a random sample. And unlike uh, a phone poll where you ask them, you know, would you be willing to pay X amount? You actually have some idea of what the taxes are that these folks pay, or at least what they would pay based on their income. Exactly. So describe in, in how you then implemented uh, on some of these questions a question that actually had people some likelihood of what they'd actually pay. So uh, given that we have some estimate of what they pay, you ask them a general question to begin with, how much would you da-da-da-da? And they'll say, as they do, uh, yes, I'm in favor of the, such and such a change. And they then, expand, you asked why they got expanded Medicaid coverage, chronic ill being covered, right. and the other was health care to the uninsured. Right. Subsidies so we asked to, three options like that. Which one would you choose? How much taxes would you pay? Then we can actually go back in and give them a dollar amount based on the actual taxes they would pay, i.e. contingent valuation. And it turns out that when you do that, they're, uh, and put the actual dollar amount in. With a, based uh, on a cost estimate of what these proposals exactly. would cost. And, and, the econ- and we picked this up from economists who work in the environment who have been uh, uh, really doing the first work on contingent evaluation on the environment to say, you know, how much would it really cost? This is what it would be. And so we've uh, duplicated that in the healthcare area across three separate samples. And the only one, uh, and so the, basically the support uh, falls away as soon as the, is there any amount attached to it? And it falls away rather rapidly. And the, you used a, you, pres, you assumed, if I remember correctly, that each proposal would be financed by an equal proportional increase in people's income tax burdens. Right. Uh, of course, taxes are raised and collected from all kinds of sources, but that's a good place to start. The interesting part about that is that a lot of Americans pay zero income tax. Right. So not surprisingly, uh, <laughs> they're really enthusiastic about health care reform, right? Those exactly. The, uh, if you pay taxes... Of course, it starts pretty quickly. I believe the actual amount is $52,000. If you make $52,000 on pay taxes, you don't really wish to uh, have your taxes increased to increase coverage. But the people who are paying no taxes, federal income taxes, uh, they're much more in favor of uh, health care reform. And uh, as, as would be expected, it's rational. It's not going to cost them anything. Yeah. Uh, although they could, of course, end yes. up in those higher groups in the exactly. future, higher income categories, right. so it could cost them something down the so road. So that makes us a conservative test in, in that we assume that uh, that would be static, that is, that uh, you wouldn't have to pay. Correct. Whereas if you, and because the minute you move them into the category, uh, you'd have to pay taxes this, you assume they'd be the same as the others. Less enthusiastic. Yes. Now, did you find any proposals that would get majority support? Uh, the only one was for people with continuing uh, illnesses. That chronic was, illness. Uh, yeah, chronic illness that had uh, some support level. I think it was a relatively, it was borderline. It was like 52%. Borderline, 51, 51 52%. Yeah. Not, not even much there. So, But what, that, that I think is pretty understandable right? because these are people who can't be in, held in any way responsible right. for their condition. And even Presumably. that had the narrowest of margins. So that suggests that the reality down the road is that health, changing the healthcare system from the status quo is unlikely because people are either 
either are sufficiently happy with their own or sufficiently unconcerned about other folks, given the cost that they perceive they'd have to pay. Th- that's right. This is an argument. It's depressing, that, isn't it? Pardon? It's a little depressing. It, it is. It, uh, 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 it um, is an argument perhaps. that Mike Spence, uh, whom, as, as you know, a Nobel Prize winning economist for signaling theory, Mike Spence and Dan Kessler and I have this uh, argument about, in, in Mike's view, why is it that the United States can't have some minimal level of support as they do in Italy, etc., or as they do in France, and then let people who want protection above that provide, uh, have uh, health insurance as they do in Italy, Australia, and many other countries. And our argument is that that would be the best thing to do if you could do it. The, the problem from our view, and I speak for Dan Kessler and myself at this point, the problem is that when those systems uh, started, the cost of medicine was quite low. So if you look at Britain, it was after World War II, and Italy, uh, et cetera, Germany, it was earlier. But in each one of those cases, they've had, they started at a low level when the cost of medicine weren't high. And they were able to create public boards. They were created institutions that actually have authority and make decisions which deny uh, certain treatments, etc. In the United States at the present time, the expectations are so high that if you went in and said, here's a situation and here's the minimum level we're going to do it, the claims would be, oh, you can't do that because you're, this is bad for the poor, the expectations are high, technology is so much better now than it was. So in our view, it's not that that's, the idea is so bad that there would be, it's just that you couldn't get, you couldn't ever get agreement on what that minimum standard would be because the expectations for healthcare are so high, especially in, in regard to the technology, et cetera. And you'd immediately start out by establishing a plan that would deny certain technologies. That makes it really hard. I'm a little puzzled by that. Don't we have such a system? Isn't the current American system a weird, in my opinion, not very attractive, but it's the reality, a weird hybrid yes. of a public floor and then private do whatever you want? In fact, private do whatever you want, often subsidized by tax exemption of, of you right. know, premia. But, you know, you've got, you've got Medicaid, which is supposed to cover the poor. Uh, you've got Medicare, which covers the old, which are publicly provided. And, of course, there's implicit or sometimes explicit rationing within those systems, which is unavoidable. But there is a floor. It's pretty generous. They use the best technology. Poor people get uh, a heart uh, attack prevention and cure at the they get stents and and balloon angioplasty they don't get denied those the most basic health things that we all care about the gap is that group of folks who aren't poor, it seems to me who aren't poor poor enough to qualify for medicaid and choose often employment that has higher compensation and wages and salary and less in benefits that's what people want Evidently, or the marketplace you think would provide a different mix of wages and, and benefits. So it seems we kind of have that system, don't we? Yeah, the 43 million that they talk about uh, who are unemployed. Uninsured. Uninsured, sorry. That takes a lot of people who are uh, eligible for Medicaid and who don't sign up. Plus, you have a large number of young people 
under 30 who make uh, over $50,000. So when you get down we're to that... We're optimistic about their own Yeah, exactly. So far, the, therefore, they don't do it. So, so the answer is we're not far from that. Uh, we're not far from that program. And the actual numbers of people who are uninsured is quite uh, debated. But anyone who goes to a uh, health clinic or to an emergency room is taken care of in the fashion you're, uh, you're, you're speaking of. And John Cogan has a uh, nice paper uh, that I don't think is out yet, which talks about why isn't the uh, emphasis on access rather than coverage. And on, in regard to that access, then uh, his point is that uh, access is much more uh, like the system you just spoke of. Lot, most people have uh, access. Now, I've always been puzzled by our obsession with health care insurance rather than health care. Uh, I don't have insurance to cover... Uh, changing the oil in my car, it comes out of my own pocket. Uh, I don't always remember to do it, but I usually do it. Yeah. It costs the, the, a poor person the same amount as a rich person. They probably often will delay how long they wait between oil changes, which is, of course, unwise, not prudent. Uh, probably, although I, who knows, whether you really need to change oil every 3,000 miles. Um, so... It's a weird thing that we have this obsession with health care insurance. Right, and the, and the other problem is to that example of the oil, which I thought was a good one. I'd add to that the fact that if you're well-to-do, you get your oil changed every 500 miles rather than every 2,000 because it wouldn't cost you anything, which is what happens with insurance, right? People Correct. overuse the doctor because Correct. it doesn't cost them anything. Out of pocket. Uh, quotes around yeah. doesn't cost. Correct. Yeah, and that's... Uh, of course, when you can add the coverage, you can lobby the political process to have the coverage include pinstriping, adding a, a yes. new CD player, better stereo, You know, which we're heading toward. It's yeah. true. I think yeah. there are certain things that are not covered. Plastic surgery is still, I think, iffy, but often uh, many, many things, the expansion of through state mandates and other uh, Well, techniques. that was one of the things about the McCain plan, which wanted to take uh, health care plans from various states and make them overlap because, for example, the Arizona plan is pretty much bare bones minimum, where the California plan includes acupuncture and massage therapy, et cetera. California plan expect. meaning if you offer insurance yeah. through the your, your employer, you have to exactly. allow, exactly. So you have to include these these exactly. coverages. And once that's in, obviously that's coverage that's much broader than the Arizona coverage, yeah. which is uh, doesn't cover acupuncture and so on. And then the problem, though, is making it, taking it from one state to the other and making it applicable given that the plans come through. But the idea is how do you get to some basic minimum low-cost plan? And that's not particularly easy either through the states or what we talked about earlier. And, of course, the political yeah. dynamics of that is to always expand it and Exactly. Uh, I assume. Although, you know, we might think for a minute, I'd like to hear your thoughts on this reality, which is due to tax changes over the last 25 years, 30 years, we have removed more and more families from the income tax. So the political economy of that is, is a pretty unhealthy thing, it seems to me, where for any any type of expansion of government starts off with a pretty much a, a 40% um, support because it doesn't cost you anything out of pocket. I don't think most of those voters worry about the dynamics in the long run for the economy of higher and higher tax rates or tax burden. 
We, uh, yeah, uh, we were, uh, Dan Kessler and I were talking about this morning uh, the results that you mentioned that uh, the people who were more in favor of health care reform were people who weren't going to pay for it. So we uh, have just started out to go back and uh, have uh, some Gallup poll data where we have can make some estimates of how much taxes people pay. Uh, we thought we'd go back to the late 30s and uh, continue it out. So look at uh, who's paying taxes and do their opinions in the aggregate change over time on that dimension. And my guess is that in the post-World War II period until you get to the modern period where you get real drop-offs in who's not paying taxes, that people's attitudes change by virtue of that. It'd be nice to have that in some fashion where you could actually have some real estimates of it. So we're starting to look at that. Well, I've looked at some of that Gallup poll data myself, and I think they've asked for a long, long time, uh, do you think tax, your taxes are too low, too high, just about right? right. If I remember correctly, uh, a very, very small percentage think they're too low. Right. Uh, that number stays pretty yeah. constant, yeah. Yeah. under 5%, yeah. uh, if I remember correctly. The too high category is pretty healthy, um, but that'll be interesting. So interesting we're going to use the actual, but there's data on how much the, uh, in the old days, uh, you could get estimates on, we have some estimates on how much they make mm-hmm. from their question. Oh. So we're going to use that as the estimator of how much taxes they paid. Uh-huh. And then so we'll have sort of an objective plus their own measure of what, of what they feel well, about nice. taxes. Yeah, that'll be nice. Now I should mention, as I always do when we talk about this, that Income tax is only a small portion, a healthy portion, but only a small portion of total taxes. At the individual level, payroll taxes are increasingly important over time. Uh, if you include the employer's part of it, it's you know we're talking 15, 16% taxes on everybody who's working, whether they're low income or high income. And uh, it's close to a flat tax, not completely. But I've always felt that the average American struggles to understand the role of the payroll tax. They probably don't think about the employer side as coming out of their own pocket. Most economists think that it is. And they often think that their side of it, the 8 and so 7 to 8% that's supporting Social Security and, and Medicaid, Medicare is and disability, that that is going into their own account in the proverbial lockbox. So, of course, it's not. It's yeah. going to fund the war uh, in Iraq, food stamps, agricultural price supports, and everything else, the stimulus package. So there's a certain, I think, schizophrenia in the average voter's mind about income taxes. That funds the government. Payroll taxes, that's for me. And I think that distorts the dynamic in the the sense that I think a large portion think they don't pay anything for the government, uh, which is the income tax part. So... Right, and, that, and you have to add to that the whole health care benefit, which is not taxed for the employer, Correct. but which ultimately comes, comes out of the employee's point, yeah. salary. Yeah. So the result, I actually, so among political scientists, there's this uh, statement that at any time, and it's true, that at any time you do the polling, two-thirds of Americans are uh, in favor of lower taxes, uh, more spending, and a balanced budget. 
And, and my view is, why shouldn't they be when what politicians tell them is that all these problems can be solved? So if you listen to what politicians tell people over time, it's not as though in this health care or the Clinton health care, all, all, the, all the, the, short, the costs are all short term in the long run. It saves us money. Right. I think uh, people are told by politicians that there are no problems, there are no trade-offs. And so it's not surprising that they don't, they don't see them. And if they do see them, certainly in a poll, there's no incentive for them to take them into account when expressing exactly. their general viewpoint. And, and I guess that's an important point about why uh, that when economists started to do these contingent valuations uh, in the environment, and now we've done them in healthcare, that those are very important when you're doing polling because it actually gives you a way to put a dollar amount on that makes a, respondent, a respondent's reply in an accurate fashion. Let's look a little more uh, generally now to some of the work you've done, as much as you want to talk about, on, on gridlock uh, generally. Uh, some people view gridlock as, I think it's supposed to be a pejorative term. For me, yeah. of course, it's often a plus. Yeah. Uh, I'm often happy when, when Congress is uh, not able to move forward. But a lot of people view that as a problem uh, with our political system and you've done some interesting work on health care, going back to the 92 plan that did not succeed, and then gave a general analysis of gridlock. So talk about uh, why you think the 92, 92 reforms didn't work and, in general, how gridlock uh, occurs. Well, so gridlock, uh, this all came out of uh, uh, classes that uh, Keith Crable at the business school and I and Craig Bolden were teaching in political science and at the business school. And uh, so the question was, the time was 1992, Clinton had been elected, end of uh, 12 years of gridlock between Republican presidents and Democratic houses. And so we were going to see this tsunami of change. Peace dividend. Progress, peace dividend. Cold War ending. All, all of that. And um, our feeling was that uh, things weren't going to change uh, all that much, but we didn't have... Uh, we didn't have a way to think about it. So what we started to think about was what, what would the uh, objective meaning of gridlock mean? And so from economic theory of uh, Duncan Black and others, the median voter, uh, we looked at, uh, so, so, if you think of the, so if you think of it, in, uh, what, what, in order to pass legislation, you need 51 votes in, or 50 votes in the Senate plus the vice president, 218 votes in the House of Representatives. But there are supermajority institutions, and in one is the presidential veto, of course, and in the Senate Rule 22, which is the filibuster, which says <coughs> if you have 41 senators uh, willing to stick together, you can't vote. So, so what we did then was sort of draw up a graph, a, a straight line, and say take median wa uh, uh, minimum wage. The, the idea would be if the, wherever the status quo is, suppose it was $4 an hour and you wanted to move it to $5 an hour, even if the 50th senator were there, if the 41st senator was at $2 an hour, they could stop from moving it that way. So if you think of uh, a region between the 40th and the 60th senator, if legislation is stuck, if the status quo is between the 40th and the 60th senator, it's hard to move it out. And only an election can change that. And most elections... In, with, well, I want to challenge that. You, okay. When you, when you invoke that, you're, you're saying that senators with different preference, preferred preferences would come in. 
That would be the argument, right? Yes, yeah. And I and you're actually correct. It's possible that uh, that uh, an event, an internal event, could occur, uh, or a, uh, a rather an exogenous shock. Voters could get more would, aware of something. Yeah, or, and yeah. therefore you would change opinion within it. But the normal way to shift policy away is uh, through through an election result. So when we looked at the uh, '92 election result, it's true it brought a uh, Democratic president in. And therefore, the veto pivot shifted from the conservative side to the liberal side, uh, meaning that progressive legislation would not be vetoed as it had been by uh, George Herbert Walker Bush. But on the other hand, what people didn't note was that uh, on the House side, the Republicans actually picked up 10 seats. And uh, the Democrats, uh, the Democrats in the Senate contained a large number of conservative Southern Democrats, who, some of whom, like Shelby of Alabama later, became uh, Republicans. So the question was, did they have the votes to shift public policy on health care all the way over to universal coverage? And some of you who are older may remember President Clinton at his uh, State of the Union address, first one, taking that pen out and saying, I will not sign this unless there's universal coverage. Well, the cost of the universal coverage was quite high. And uh, the bill, the House bill that uh, Mrs. Clinton wrote, or the bill Mrs. Clinton wrote and submitted to the House, never even cleared the committee. They couldn't get the votes of Mike Andrews and three other Texans on it to, to kick it out. So the only bill that started to actually work or get closer was the uh, Cooper of Tennessee and then finally uh, Moynihan, a Democrat uh, of New York, and Chafee, a Republican. They started dropping coverage going from 100% to 85% and therefore decreasing the cost. So and that got, yeah, exactly. More conservative folks. Right, that got closer, but by the time the session ended, uh, they did, they were close but couldn't get it done. And then in the, after that, it was uh, the Clintons and the Democrats running for their life. And as you know, they lost the election, 1994 elections. And so health care is now back and uh, faces some of the same problems. And what's your prediction about the likelihood of fundamental change? Well, on Dan Kessler and I have this argument all the time. I actually think they'll get a bill, uh, and, and the, they will not get the public. So there's a bill now right at this particular mom, moment in time. The House committee has, uh, of Waxman has passed a bill that's going to cost about $1.2 trillion over a decade, that doesn't count the Medicare improvements. My view is they will not get that bill because the blue dog or moderate conservative Democrats from Oklahoma, Kansas, Nebraska, uh, Florida will not be able to vote for it. And in the Senate, you've got uh, the Arkansas Democrats, Mary Landrieu from Louisiana, people like that who cannot uh, vote for that plan. So I don't think they're going to get that plan uh, because the cost is too high. I think what they're going to get is something like a $600 billion bill that will uh, be more like the Dorgan uh, bill, which is uh, going to be through the states and uh, not an entitlement. And uh, there'll be budgets and they'll help for a few years and they'll increase coverage. That's the kind of bill that can pass. I don't think my, my personal view is the cost of these, uh, the cost of the bill as present, all the present bills are are uh, too high, and second, there's for the public no, to stomach them. Yes, that's right. For the and and for and it's, it's, obviously they have the votes, 
if all you need is 50 votes, they can get uh, they 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 can't be filibustered uh, because it's under reconciliation, which means that you only do you only need 50 votes rather than 60 votes. But the problem is they don't have 50 Democratic votes. They got 60 Democratic senators, but they don't have 50. They don't have Mary Landrieu. They don't have Pryor from Arkansas. They don't have Blanche Lincoln. There's all kinds. They don't have Nelson. They, these people are not going to vote for stuff that. Uh, causes them problems in their next election. So uh, they'll have to shift away from that. Uh, so that, uh, that, that's the, that seems to be the, the major thing. And the second thing is that's going to hurt them is there's no cost control in, in any of that. Which is the way they're trying to solve Yeah, the it. cost controls are hand-waving. Yeah. And, and when the director of the Congressional Budget Office, who's appointed by Democrats, comes out on these bills and says there's no cost control. It's awkward. Uh, from, it's from awkward, marketing it, and marketing. therefore you have a situation where the Senate is not going to vote until after the recess, and my view is the House may not vote until after the recess. I, I want to step back. I mean, I'm very interested in, in, in the conversation, but I, I want to step back and, and challenge you as to how economists and political science might look, look at this a little bit differently. The first is, those those senators you mentioned who are not going to stomach these these cost increases, and I assume by the way all this is predicated on some kind of status quo in the current economy. Obviously, right. if the economy takes another tumble downward, you're even more pessimistic exactly. about about the probability of something happening. And and uh, if things suddenly look rosy, maybe there would be right. a better exactly. chance of it. Exactly. But, um, when you talk about an, a senator being against or in favor of this, I tend to think of it as an economist as politicians really don't have any opinions. They're just trying to stay elected. Um, So they're going to listen to the folks back home. And the people in the states you're talking about tend to be more conservative, maybe more budgetarily, fiscally conservative as well. And so the political, where these politicians are in the left or right spectrum is irrelevant. It's just the where their constituents are that brings their voice out. And if they found out their constituents were somewhere else, they changed their tune. Yeah, I, I do you believe, look at it that way? I do. I believe there. I believe when you look at preferences, they're largely induced preferences. Uh, so I, the way I put it, as a uh, economist friend of mine once said, suppose imagine the following experiment. Imagine. All the interest groups, like the Americans for Democratic Action and National Security and Americans for Constant, everybody's happy uh, because everybody, uh, but here's the following experiment. On any given vote, half of the members of the House and half of the members of the Senate don't, they get to vote, but it's not recorded. That's the experiment. That's the experiment. So the outcome will be recorded, but not the, the individual recorded, votes. But half or not. So everybody by every other vote, you get free. You can have enough votes, so you have a. You can prove to the Americans for Democratic Action that you're liberal, and you can prove to the conservatives you're conservative, and the NRA that you support it. Would the legislation be more left or right? My view is that representatives and senators have private views. And those private views for Democrats are further left than the legislation they pass, and for Republicans, further right than the legislation that passes. And so it's exactly the public vote and the fact, the point you made, that uh, they're trying to calculate, how do I get reelected? 
And so it's an induced preference, whatever their preference is. So uh, when I look at uh, this legislation, the reason I think it uh, has trouble passing again is cost matters to people. It seems to matter most to independents. That is, Democrats still favor this. Republicans are opposed to it. But the 36% of people who are independent, they're starting to trend down. Independents have always worried more about costs as the facts come out. States that are uh, so Democrats from states like Nebraska, which are Republican states with independents, and they're starting to move the other way. You see a guy like Nelson. How is he going to vote for this legislation? The last point I'd like to make on that, or maybe not the last, but a clarification is when uh, when we think about this, the the senator or the representative is making a calculation about not it's not that the senators don't understand what a single payer plan will do what they're uncertain about is if i pass a single payer plan how will that affect me in terms of reelection yep. and that means something like uh, go back to 93 those uh, harry and louise commercials were very effective but only because they increased uncertainty that is, most Americans are happy with their health care system. Because they're happy with their health care system, the Harry and Louise commercials went and said, you know, if this bill passes, you might not be able, they may pick your doctor for you. That meant that uh, Democrats, in this case, who wanted to vote for the legislation are thinking, if I vote for this and it doesn't work out two years from now, four years from now, they've taken the doctor, I'll get an opponent who will say, you know, Russ Roberts, he's yeah. the guy that voted for that legislation that took your doctor. Your doctor. And, and one other point on that, that and, and that was a lesson learned. If you look at Hillary Clinton's health care plan, all of the proposals before the Congress today are proposals where if you like your health care plan, keep it. <laughs> yeah. But that's the problem. If you keep your health care plan, you can't deal with the costs. Yeah. And, and so the dilemma is members of Congress understand that. And they're now trying to figure out, well, this keeps, maybe the cost will go out of sight. And so when, when you think of uncertainty for them, it's not, un, it's not that they're stupid and don't see that plan A does this plan. What they're trying to calculate is exactly what you said. If I do this, what are the consequences to me in the next election and the next one? And that is not an easy thing to calculate. And, and my view is much of what Congress does uh, or is like what human beings do. Under conditions of uncertainty, we fall back on the status quo. I, I know what the status quo is. When I'm uncertain, I fall back to the status quo. So this, um, this sort of implicit methodology we've been talking about where what people actually pay as voters translates into how they actually uh, feel about particular legislation, which then through the process translates into how legislators take positions. Let me give you a challenge to that, which is on my mind, which is the stimulus bill. So the stimulus bill was $800 billion, I think, over 10 years, yep. which basically said, I'm getting away from all the subtlety that we've been talking about, but it basically said to, it, if I did the math right, uh, we're going to make you as a family pay hundreds of dollars, and of course for some folks it was thousands, um, for stuff that's vague and indeterminate in the name of keeping the economy from going into a recession. Now, for a variety of reasons, I think the average American is a Keynesian, has in the back of their mind that 
that there's this multiplier and government stimulus, but it's a very expensive multiplier, right? So why do you think that passed? If you'd done a poll, if you'd done one of your contingent valuation polls before that vote had passed, I suspect you wouldn't have gotten as much, very much support for it. It would, of course, depend how you worded it. But that bill, which was somewhat unpopular, but still passed, yeah. passed. And let me give you one more to make it a little more uncomfortable. General Motors bailout, uh, the takeover of, by the government of General Motors. I don't think that had majority support among the American people. Why did that happen? Well, uh, prob- it probably didn't, depending upon how you w- worded the question. So, uh, in one way, when a member's so I like to so when a member's thinking about what will happen, uh, what will happen to me if I vote or don't vote for this, and what what will I get? So, in regard to the first one, the stimulus package, uh, there was not the president was in favor of it. The Democrats in Congress, the committee chairs, have been sitting there out of office, the Henry Waxmans and so on. They've been sitting there out of power for 12 years, and they were anxious to do what they hadn't been able to do. Give out money. And they could give out money, and they could say uh, that this was to help help solve the, quote, very real crisis that was out there. And and there was, while there was opposition, the opposition came sort of from gut-level instincts, uh, Republicans being opposed to it. Uh, and, and on, but on the other hand, there was not, not much in the press that took it on and said, no, this is a bad idea. And so that uh, public opinion on that ended up staying favorable to it. And representatives, I think, uh, had a good... Uh, good out. The president wanted it. The president's very popular. And if it didn't work, they could uh, lay it off. Then finally, with the, but, but over time, with the second, uh, with, with the bailout of the, uh, the bailout of the uh, GM and Chrysler, uh, you began to see public opinion falling away. Uh, they passed by smaller margins. And finally, you get down to the health care, where you're in this situation. Now, that sort of makes sense, but it's ad hoc. I agree, given your... So the question is, we ourselves make some assumptions when we look at that linearity and how induced preferences. I, I believe the answer ultimately has to be uh, sort of the... the uh, my view is two, th- two, two questions. I want to add one to what you've already posed. Why is it that relatively smart politicians always... Over So these people are smart enough to get elected president of the United States, like Newt Gingrich, Speaker of the House of Representatives, leave a revolution. So in 92, Clinton comes in, absolutely overestimates what he can do with gays in the military, health care, et cetera, et cetera. Then the Republicans get in in 1994, absolutely overestimate what they can do in terms of the contract with America, in which they get about seven of them through the House and uh, one and only one through the Senate. What What is it about that that leads to uh, excess expectations. Uh, that's a research question that we don't know uh, yet. That's probably more on the politicians and the flush of winning. And on the other hand, the question about why did the stimulus package, why does GM pass, why they pass, that's a question about uh, timing. So we're going to need to find out about induced preferences and the timing of those induced preferences, which may have something to do with how long presidents actually have to be able to get stuff through before uh, the induced, before representatives, before the normal political processes come to work. So those are two good questions. 
I gave an answer, but the answer doesn't really fit the model as well as I wish it did. But your model, the one we have in the back of our minds, a very simple model of left-right yes. spectrum, right. you're at a certain place. Obviously, an induced preference for a politician, that is a preference that is coming out of the, the electorate, not every voter is equally weighted, right? You've got special friends you want right. to take care of. A lot of people have claimed, I don't know if there's any way to know for right. sure, that Something like GM passes because it's very targeted to a particular group. You want to help those that group, right. and it's not every voter counts equally. No, that's correct. Uh, and and uh, there's another uh, economist call it slack, and so that uh, over time they don't pay it. Not every voter counts equally. Not every issue counts equally. And over time, representatives view, build trust or something so that they have some slack, and voters give them some leeway in how they vote. Uh, although, uh, if that were true, then ultimately Congress could do, if Congress, since members have all been there quite a while, uh, or on average they've been there quite a while, they could do what they want. Uh, Brandis Keynes and John Cogan and I did a paper on out of step, out of office that shows that uh, at a certain time, uh, if you vote too liberally for your district or too conservatively for it, they will get you and defeat you. Not as quickly, in my view, as it should be, but uh, it does, in fact, happen. But it's a long, slow process with a lot of uncertainty in it. You talked earlier about how in 92 and today, uh, within a party, there are people who are not as liberal, uh, say, for example, the Democratic Party, the Southern Democrats, the so-called Blue Dogs. Uh, it's true in the Republican Party also. You have the senators from Maine who are much more liberal than the average Republican senator. Um, are they both Republicans in Maine? I can't remember now. Yeah, yeah I can't. I really yes, can't. They are. They are. I don't live yeah. in Maine. Yeah, they are. Not that that would matter. Um, there is an impression that people have that that phenomenon is decreasing, that there is much more polarization within each party, that, that Democrats are all much more liberal and Republicans are much more conservative than they were 20, 30, and 40 years ago when there's more diversity in the party. For some reason, by the way, I think it's interesting that that's decried, that somehow that's a, yeah. a bad thing. But is it true, and why, if it, if it is true? Well, one thing is true, that there's been a sorting process. So it used to be that when you looked at uh, the Republican Party, there were conservatives, like to go back, date myself, Barry Goldwater, but there was the uh, Nelson Rockefeller, William Scranton, the liberal wing of the uh, party, and among the Democrats, there was the uh, liberal wing, used to call it in the Democratic Party, used to call it the Boston-Austin nexus, in which the speaker would uh, be somebody like Rayburn, and then the next in line would be McCormick, somebody from Massachusetts. And the idea was uh, as follows, that there were conservative Southerners in the Democratic Party and liberal Northerners, and only Texans. In the Republicans. Yeah, uh, yeah. You're still in the Democrats. Still yeah. in the Democrats. And only Texans. Because a Texan from Sam Rayburn's district out West Texas or a senator like Lyndon Johnson could vote for a mild civil rights bill allowing the Texan to talk to both the northern wing and the southern wing. Uh, well, so, but what's happened is there's been a sorting now. And uh, the people who were kind of liberal Republicans are now Democrats. And the people who were conservative uh, Democrats are now uh, are, are now Republicans. So there's a sorting. It doesn't mean that the distribution's any different. 
It just now means that uh, you used to have a think of a big uh, blue marble ball, uh, blue marble jar here, a red marble bar, and they used to be inter intermixed. Now the reds are over here in the blue, and all the blues and the other are in the red. So that's a sorting, and not a cha fundamental change in the distribution of politics or the outcomes. Uh, the outcome, but things get more polarized then because everybody who's uh, now people uh, both party. Uh, there's no crossover voting. Because conservative Democrats less. are now, yeah, less. There's less. So the and the second thing that happened was, uh, once in 1974, Congress passed the uh, the Reform Acts of 1974. It gave the leadership uh, more power to structure the vote, and as they structure the vote, they tend to have voting records in the United States Congress now voting on issues that force left and right on uh, members. That doesn't mean that uh, there has still isn't a lot of bipartisanship. It just takes place in different ways. I might add that in 1974, at the same time they were forcing the votes and, and uh, doing these things to recognize more polarization or sorting in the Congress, they uh, introduced this issue of uh, joint sponsor, co-sponsorship of bills. And if you trace co-sponsorship of bills, there's been a lot more bipartisanship on co-sponsoring than uh, has occurred in the past. And the reason is, if you come from one of those districts that's got evenly divided Democrat and Republican, a bunch of independents, you can't win re-election being either fully Republican or Democrat, so you gotta show your constituents, just like you were pointing out earlier, they don't really have an ideology in that sense. I gotta show my constituents that I'm a, mild, I'm a moderate, mild guy, and the way to do that is they do a lot of co-sponsorship and bring their co-sponsors in and talk about, I sponsored a bill with Senator Jones who from this state, so there's still a lot, there's still bipartisan activity, but again, in my view, it's driven by the nature of the constituency being represented. Do we know anything about that sorting you mentioned being due to uh, migration patterns in the United States, dem state demographics, political? That is a great question. Uh, that's a great question. Uh, partly it is. Uh, it's partly a result of uh, migration of uh, Republicans into the South and partly uh, sort of a transformation. What uh, in one in a paper uh, a student of mine, Hari Han, and I did, we, we looked at that over time, and what we found was that uh, sort of beginning in 1950, uh, it started with Democrats, but then Republicans learned to do it. Democrats learned to run on their own. So any sane Democrat by 1956 knew that Adlai Stevenson was not going to uh, lead them else. to victory. <laughs> and so uh, they lost uh, control of the House in 52. So Democrats began in that time period, 54, on to run in a different way. Uh, I'll give you one example. Barrett O'Hara, Chicago's first district, used to have a big sign, O'Hara, Democrat, district, first district, Chicago. Uh, in 1956, he suddenly became O'Hara, Chicago. And the point was, this is called the personal vote. And uh, we can document that the personal vote begins at about this time. And what that meant was that candidates were able to... Uh, have some personal loyalty to them, not to their party, loyalty to them. And it averages about 8%, but that's a big Huge swing. number, yeah. Yeah, that means, and that, that means that, uh, well, explains the following thing. 
from 1950, uh, from 1948 on, it was very common for a president to face a Congress of the other party. Uh, Eisenhower faced Democratic Congresses after his first term, six years of Democratic Congresses. Uh, and uh, then a Republican president, Nixon won huge victory, but had Democratic House and Senate. Uh, in 72, same thing for Nixon, huge victory, Democrats control the House and Senate. It's not until 1980 that Ronald Reagan gets a, Demo a Republican Senate, but even then the House remains. And everyone thought, a lot of books in political science, and they say, oh, that's because Democrats are better candidates, better politicians. Then suddenly you get Bill Clinton winning re-election in 96 with the House. So the question was, these members learned to, to, to run as individuals, and therefore they were protected from national swings. Uh, what we found, uh, what Hari and I found was that over time, as these old guys uh, ended their careers, faded out, the Demo Southern Democrats were replaced by Republicans. Uh, liberal Republicans in the Northeast were replaced by Democrats. Because their new... The new candidates didn't have that personal eight exactly. percent to count on. They didn't on, have you know. the first. They build it, but they didn't have it right up. So what we found there, this is an interesting number. So what? How do you measure that? Well, one way to measure it is to simply look at uh, retirement slump. So you just ask a question: When a member retires, what is the what happens to his party share of the vote or her party share of the vote? And uh, it's random. Until, 19, uh, until the 1950s. After that, retirement slump averages about 7%. And then the next question to ask is, well, what happens the first year after, after, a, new candidate, after a new member comes in, i.e. the first year they can run as an incumbent, what happens? Uh, there we have a clever term, sophomore surge. And on average, the sophomore surge is about 8%. So when an incumbent retires, the party loses about 8%. When an uh, incumbent runs in their first election, they jump shift the vote about 8 percentage points. And that, percentage, that personal vote didn't come in until the 50s and, uh, is now, uh, and, now, uh, and has not yet gone away, but it's still about 6%. So members, which is consistent with the way you put it earlier, i.e. members understand their district, they do what they need to do to run in the district, and part of the way of doing that independent of the party is to build this personal vote. Yeah, it, it's interesting because it reminds me a little bit of, uh, reminds me a little bit of um, brand loyalty in, in product markets because, yeah. you know, I think a lot of American, go back to our car example, a lot of American car makers had some brand loyalty. Some would always buy a Ford, always buy a GM, and they squandered some of that through quality problems as well as improvements by their competitors. And uh, that makes it harder to stay in office in the, in the economic sector. Yes, yeah. So it's right. a similar problem. How do politicians build that personal... Uh, how, besides not running on, with, on the coattails of an unpopular president, I assume they do other things to engender love and affection. Well, they uh, first of all, they spend a, a lot of time back home. Uh, all congressmen and congresswomen have uh, have uh, district offices back home. On average, uh, of the twenty or so staff members they can have, uh, the more insecure you are electorally, uh, the more people you have back home. And among people who just got elected, they have much higher proportions back home and fewer staff in Washington. Uh, the schedule of Congress, as you know now, is Tuesday, Thursday. 
so if you want to meet, you live in California and you want to see the California uh, delegation, you either get the United, uh, you get the United 545 flight out of uh, Dulles uh, going either to Los Angeles or uh, San Francisco. San Francisco, you'll see seven or eight congressmen and congresswomen on it, and you'll see 12 or 13 Democratic uh, congressmen going to L.A. So members are back home. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. They uh, Monday they fly back and get in. Because they care about their families. Huh? That's because they care about their families, or their families are in Washington, aren't they? Actually, uh, uh, <laughs> some of them are, and some of them aren't. Uh, and and they uh, so you know they uh, send out uh, franking. Uh, you know you send out you got everybody Love gets letters. surveys. Yeah. I need help on blah blah blah. You get the blue book when your baby's born. The number there are uh, flags. Uh, you know, uh, I don't know if you have one, but uh, getting a flag that's flown over the capital of the United States, uh, that's passed out by members of Congress. They uh, they zip up, uh, up that? and down. What is that? Uh, a flag, what do you mean? A flag, mean? A, a flag flown over. So you, if you can get a flag, your congressman or congresswoman can get you a flag that's flown over the U.S. Capitol. And those flags go up about every 30 seconds, come back down, they mail them out. They do? Oh, yeah. Oh, well, they've flown over the Capitol. That's touching. Uh, yeah. There is, uh, There are uh, press rooms. The, pre- the, the press is all set up for people to do local coverage back home. Um, so there are, there are lots of ways they keep in touch with constituents. Now, of course, some of this effect is... Of incumbent, is incumbency per se, right? It's... It, What's interesting about this story is that there's a, it's a political innovation, that somewhere in the 50s, politicians got better at this technique of engendering love for them rather than their party or their ideology. Right. Right. Some of that is the, is the underlying process, I presume, of, of election where it's gotten more expensive, uh, incumbents have a natural advantage, they have better name recognition. Is that That's part of the story too, right? That's, that's, that's part of the story. Uh, I think... We, we don't know the definitive because the numbers get pretty small to make a generalization. But for my money, what happened was the uh, exogenous innovation of polling uh, forced people to uh, start to behave differently. Again, uh, think of 32, 36. So Lyndon Johnson, when he first ran for Congress in 1938, he was able to run on the fact that I'll back, I'll back President Roosevelt all the way. There were no public opinion polls on how popular he was. Were not not so well known. You read uh, Farley would call around and check with the local party bosses about how things were doing. So what what happened with the poll as polling got better? You're a Democratic congressman in 1956. You've already been beaten. You've already been beaten by uh, Eisenhower in '52. You lost your seat, and uh, it's perfectly clear that the candidate's not going to win. Uh, Stevenson's not going to win. So you begin to think about how do I position myself differently? I can't, I can't be a Stevenson Democrat. Right. And uh, that, uh, that, uh, that, the, the split vote in American politics, where you'll vote for president at one level and Congress at the other, that vote uh, doesn't begin to develop until the post-World War II period. Eisenhower is the first president to face a Democratic Congress of the other parties since uh, 1848, 
Zachary wow. Taylor. And the reason Zachary Taylor faced it was a separate reason, because the uh, Free Soil Party ran, and because the Free Soil Party only had a presidential candidate, they didn't have a ballot below that. It was party ballot. And, and so any votes for Free Soil took away votes from uh, took away votes from the Whig Party because they were mainly competing for it. So Zachary Taylor was the first president in 1848. Eisenhower's the next. And then since then, wow. it's quite common. And one other thing, incumbency's always been strong. Incumbents have always won re-election. But the difference was, say, you take the Republican incumbent, uh, incumbency in the United States between 1920 and 1932, 98% of incumbents who ran for re-election won. But the difference was they were ran and won because uh, Southern Democrats run because there were no opponents. Uh, and in the Republican side, the economy was doing very well, most on average during that time period. But remember, in 1932, when the economy went to hell, incumbents lost like crazy. Roosevelt comes in. There's a huge coattail that Roosevelt gets and draws candidates with him. Those coattails disappeared with the, uh, with the, rise, of the, uh, with the rise of the personal vote. Remember, the difference is there's an incumbency <coughs> excuse me, that matters, but it's attached to the party, and it's right. attached to economic success. And in the latter period, it's attached to individuals and people who can go home. They spend a lot of time going home and explaining their votes. In fact, this is an interesting number. Incumbents of the opposite party do better. Of the president. Of the, do op, uh, incumbents of the opposite party of the president do better. And my, my view on that is, uh, and I'm trying to show this in some research, that they like it better because if you're in kind of one of those mixed districts, you can vote with the president when you need to, you can vote against him when you have to, and you can go back and explain that to your constituency and they view you as principled. an independent, a principled yeah. guy. Right. You don't have to be principled at all, but you bill yourself that way. But it seems in the early days of this Current president, uh, Republicans are not voting with him very often. No, they. Uh, but Republican. But remember, he started out with about forty-eight percent Republican approval, and uh, with the stimulus package, that it's went immediately lot, yeah. down to twenty percent approval. So, in spite of uh, President Obama's attempts at bipartisanship, they've not been very. And I don't hold him responsible for that. There's just no way given the current uh, view of America. And, and if the only way you're measuring that is on roll call voting, then you're not going to find, there's not going to be any bipartisanship. doesn't happen anymore. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing. I, I, I don't want to get into it in too much detail, but I, f I find it interesting that, that somehow bipartisanship is considered an inherent good, regardless of what it achieves. Yeah. <laughs> somehow, it's, it's, I think it's this sort of idea that you know, it's like brothers and sisters getting along together at the, and cousins getting together at the picnic. Afterwards, we all say, wasn't it nice? They all played so nicely. It's not really my main concern about the political process, how nicely they play. It's a strange thing. There's so much romance about bipartisanship. There is. The, the belief, I believe the, the belief is that uh, you can get more done in a bipartisan fashion. I, you know, there's some, there's some truth to that in the, in the sense that uh, after World War II, there were a number of Republicans who uh, sort of became, who had been isolationists before. Uh, the famous senator from Michigan who switched his uh, policy to become more global uh, and therefore a bipartisan foreign policy. Uh, my view is the great, 
the great issues in American politics have always been solved by partisanship, whether that's the Republicans in the Civil War ending slavery, uh, the Republicans in the 1890s who uh, kept the United States on the gold standard and in the international economy, and in the 1930s with the Democrats who uh, said we're going to have to move toward more uh, social welfare state, and they did so. In each case, what happened was one party took the, uh, quote, progressive position, the other party uh, stayed with the old position, and it took them quite a while. Just one quick example, think of... uh, Think of the uh, candidate, uh, William Jennings Bryan, the Democratic candidate. He ran in 1896 and lost. He ran in 1900 and lost by a bigger margin. Didn't get the nomination in 1904. Got the nomination in 1908 and lost again. And so it really wasn't until uh, the party gets rid of these guys. Uh, so I take I, 32, Roosevelt, as you know, Roosevelt, 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 Roosevelt. Then Truman wins again. In 52, when Eisenhower won, the Republicans, some of the right in the Republican Party wanted him to repeal the New Deal, and uh, Eisenhower was smart enough to see uh, you can't, you're not getting rid of Social Security. So the facts are that finally what happens, so the party takes a position, and in order for the other party to compete, it has to move over. One last way to put it is this. Prior to the New Deal, uh, the question was welfare or no welfare. And uh, the Democrats were sort of the party of uh, some welfare, and the Republicans were no welfare. After the New Deal, uh, in order to compete, the question was, how much welfare? The Republicans less welfare, the Democrats more. Yeah. But you have the, question, the old question of welfare and no welfare is gone. So, party status, so partisanship, as far as I'm concerned, is what solved those problems and, uh, and this notion of non-bipartisanship as an answer to all questions is simply, first of all, it's not available. You can't get it. Think of it like this. You know, my particular view is that uh, the go- uh, in regard to the environment, the government's not going to be able to. My view is, if, suppose, you, suppose your view is that you're a liberal and you say the government's got to do it. No one else can do it but the government. How about, say, climate change? Climate change. And my view is, when I think of the government and climate change, I think of... Uh, Ga- uh, what's the gas, um, that wonderful ethanol policy, right. which is, turns out well. neither good for the environment nor for cars, not good for much for, of anything. Well, Archer Daniels Spence likes yes, it a it lot. Does, yeah, it's good ADM. for they certain like people. It. And some Iowa farmers yeah. like it. But, but the point is, there's, there's, you know, I can't say in any ultimate sense that somebody who's uh, uh, believes the government can do it is wrong, and they can't say, but there's no way you're going to convince me that the government's going to solve that problem, and I'm probably not going to convince you that it's best left to a market to solve it. So given that we've got those views, I, I just don't see how we can be, well, I'm supposed to give up my view that markets work better than government. You're going to give up your view that governments work better than markets? I don't think so. And uh, therefore, as long as those are the sorts of sets of issues, why would we expect bipartisanship? What we expect is elections that give parties an ability to govern, and then it works or it doesn't work. And you get to vote them out. That's the great thing about democracy. And, and presumably, there's a connection between how people, how people vote and how things are going. And to me, uh, the American people have made reasonable choices given the choices they've been given. It's a fascinating issue. As to, I'm really intrigued by your point about some welfare versus 
no welfare, and then it becomes some well, some versus a lot, and 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 that and that's a those are fascinating questions of social change. How it is that the default or the de minimis position changes? Uh, certain things go off the table. Certain things come on the table. It's, right. um, I presume we don't understand those very well as to how those positions change over time. Those are very broad, big. We do not. I, I think we do not. I think we need to. Uh, uh, get long time. Uh, it, the best stuff is if you, be, if you can get good time series on uh, public opinion and watch the match to that. So uh, there's some stuff on that that's kind of interesting. Uh, for example, in 1932, the number of people opposed to topless bathing is the same as it is in 2004. The difference is that uh, in 1938, it was uh, topless bathing suits for men. And uh, so... <laughs> 1932, yeah, yeah. 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 So, but, the, but the point is that yeah. it, there's Slight a slow there, yeah. change that occurs. And, you know, because different votes uh, and different people on different issues weigh differently, uh, but we do need a long time series on how that happens. And, you know, it'd be nice if we could do that for the 1860s, and, but we don't. We don't yeah, have that. So, therefore, we're, we're working on variables that are, uh, we're working on, we have to make assumptions about how the congressional vote reflects events in the real world, uh, and you don't have uh, very sophisticated uh, ways to do it. Let me close with a question. Uh, I'll start by making, challenging my profession. Listeners of the program know that I've become increasingly skeptical of the idea that economics is a science. I think the so-called Nobel Prize in economics, it's technically not a Nobel Prize because Nobel didn't start. Right. It's the Bank of Sweden gives it out. But uh, I think it's awarded in economic science. Your yeah. field has that magic word in it, political science. Uh, how much science is there in political science? Have we made progress in the last... 50 years, 30 years, 10 years, uh, and will we continue to, if the answer is yes, will we continue to make progress? And how much of what we understand is um, due to the th kind of theorizing that economists and political science like to indulge in a la the harder sciences, and how much of it is due to other things? Short question, and with you, you go. I'll give you five minutes. You can take as long as you want. I'm sure you could give us a couple hours, but give, give me some simple thoughts on that. I don't have a couple of hours of anything <laughs> worthwhile on that. I, I would say that uh, there are certain areas of political science that have made progress and are more scientific, and uh, say voting studies, uh, electoral studies through polling and uh, estimates of uh, aggregate studies. Uh, also, voting studies in the Congress. There are areas where it's, you're able to quantify and to take uh, assumptions from economics and bring in uh, economic uh, thinking uh, in, onto certain political variables. So the entire discussion we've just had where we assume that... Um, that uh, congressmen and congresswomen uh, want to uh, be reelected. I think that's sort of like a price variable. It's not as uh, tidy as a price variable, but it gives you a motivation. There's some progress on that. We understand things better on the basis of that. Uh, some of it is uh, because of game theory and the way game theory uh, came into political science from economics. 
A second area in which there's progress but conflict with the first is this area of psychology and the whole uh, notion of now behavioral economics and people don't want the full plate. Uh, there's some interesting work going on in there. And and I think somehow psychology, uh, a la Tversky and Kahneman, uh, is relevant for voting. And by that I mean... Tversky and Kahneman uh, set up these uh, experiments where, the, by the way you word things, you know, people choose one. I'm now blanking. Framing. Framing, thank I, you. That's the one I'm, so yeah. framing was the word I was blanking on. And so framing analysis is sort of useful, and you can see uh, Richard Morris, uh, the notorious uh, pollster for, uh, well, all parties, all candidates, whatever he needs to do to stay in the news, uh, Morris became famous uh, sitting down and getting the wording just right so you could say it and everybody would agree with it. Uh, so there's been, if you call that progress, there's uh, some notion. But ultimately, uh, in, but ultimately in regard to uh, policy or political science, I would say, you're one of two things. Either you've adopted econometri- uh, models of econ- economics or you're using psychology uh, as a way to... Uh, temper that economic model, or you're a historian, and the historians are uh, are, are uh, applying back some some of the kind I uh, tend to be uh, tend to uh, identify with are uh, analytic, uh, very empirical. People count, look at elections, past elections, uh, and and then sort of the rest of political science remains more. Certainly, that's less science. The, uh, there, there's a lot of, quote, political theory, a la Plato, Aristotle, etc. Very interesting stuff, what's fair, sort of Rawlsian analysis. But So there are areas of political science that are more scientific, but essentially they've uh, used uh, economic models and economic thinking and applied them to politics. And then there's sort of the psychology, not just framing, but uh, ways in which psychology uh, is now integrating in some sense with economics, behavioral economics, making some progress in those things. But, uh, and it's better than, uh, better than it was uh, 30, 40 years ago. But um, there's still a lot, of, a, lot of art, a lot of art there as well as the science. I think you say the same thing for economics because I know you don't really mean that there's no science there. Not as much as I want. Not as, mu- yeah, as, not as much thought. as you'd like. Yeah, From not, grad school, you know. And, there's, yeah, and, I, <laughs> and I'm sad to say there's more science in economics than there is in political science. But there's been progress over the last 20 or 30 years. My guest today has been David Brady of the Hoover Institution and Stanford University. Dave, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Oh, thanks. It was great. Thank you. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.